Hey everyone, it's Miss Felicia J here and welcome to Love Life and a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine. This is the chapter by chapter episode and this week we are reading 50 Truths Worth Knowing. I started this podcast because of my sons and the questions that they asked me and the profound conversations that ensued. I wanted to broaden their minds so I suggested that they read some of the books that I love to read and that interest me. Well, that didn't quite work out as planned, so I came up with the idea of a podcast, reading the books that I love, heard about, wanted to read, etc., etc. So here I am, reading the books that I feel will inspire my sons, the rest of my children, you, and of course myself. If you have a suggestion, email me at chapterbychapter256 at gmail.com, and I'll put it on the reading list. This episode, we are reading, as I said, 50 Truths Worth Knowing, and we are on chapter 21. But before we get started, let's get something to drink. I always like to have a fantastic drink while I'm reading. And this week I am having sparkling water with a little bit of lemon. All right, here we go. 50 truths worth knowing. Chapter 21. The best things to own are those you earn. I was 14 years old when I decided to buy my own 10-speed bicycle. Up until then, Mom, Dad, and Santa Claus had always supplied my wheels. From my radio flyer tricycle to that first two-wheeler and on up to the sparkly blue Schwinn Stingray with the white fiber-filled banana seat and the gooseneck handlebars. I've been riding since I was 11. But now I had my own vision of what a bike should be. Time to put aside the single crank, wheelie popping kid's bike and graduate to the be-all, end-all of early 1970s high-tech pedaling, the Schwinn Continental. Racing handlebars, dual-shifting derailers, hand-activated brakes for both front and rear wheels. Now this was serious cycling. In my Continental dreams, I imagined myself starting off with a short pedal of maybe, oh, a hundred miles. Later, I'd find a scenic backcountry route across the state to test my endurance. Soon enough, I'd be charting a a course across the USA, starting out from the West Coast and pedaling east, the better to take advantage of prevailing winds, giving me a push from behind, just as the bicycling magazines promised they would. But first I had to get the bike, and that meant I had to earn the money. I didn't need Mom and Dad to tell me. I knew the time had come to buy my own wheels. If I was big enough to mount a 24-inch alloy frame with no kickstand, then I was big enough to save up the dough. So I opened a savings account, my first. At the bank, the teller gave me a small green passbook, each page clean and empty and ready for the handwritten entries of all the deposits I would make. Then, for nearly a year, I worked to save up the cash. I cut lawns in the spring and summer, raked leaves through the fall, and in between collected old soda bottles to return to the convenience store for the nickel deposit. Five dollars here, five cents there, the entries in the passbook slowly stacked up. Soon the book grew tattered and slightly curved from sitting so long in the rear pocket of my jeans. Finally the day came when I'd reached the magic monetary goal. I rode the old stingray up to the bank and asked for the entire balance amount a single $100 bill. It was more money than I'd ever seen, ever held in my hand, and I folded it carefully in half, put it in the pocket where the passbook had been, and rode home ever so slowly, worried that I might somehow lose it. A few days later, I turned that bright green hundred into a yellow Schwinn Continental. 
The price with tax actually exceeded my savings, but Santa was kind enough to kick in the few extra bucks. The gears, the tires, the handlebars, all belonged to me. And I recall now that while I rode the bike furiously for a time, its two wheels soon gave way to four, as I claimed the ultimate prize, my driver's license, two, two years later. I never did ride from coast to coast, never dipped my bike tire triumphantly in the Atlantic Ocean at trip's end, though it remains a dream that still makes me smile. But I kept the Schwinn for many years, unwilling to let it go. After all, it was the first thing I'd ever bought that I truly earned, and it was the, mon the best money I ever spent. That was by Tony Farrell. You might be more like your parents than you'd like to admit. Growing up, summer was project time. Each year, there was a home improvement endeavor that my father and I would work on together. Some were small and some were big, but it didn't matter if the project was a brick wall walkway or a two-story barn. It was just the two of us, working side by side. Often, he'd take two weeks off from his job so that we could work together, all day, every day, for those two weeks. It wasn't fun. I'd spend hours nailing down a subfloor, or digging a trench, or framing a wall, only to have my dad say, that's good, but it isn't right. He'd point out the misdriven nails that needed to be pulled out, or where the trench should have been dug, or why the wall I'd framed was out of square and had me start over again. I couldn't wait for those days to end. And soon enough, they did. After school and summer jobs that paid, sorry, after school and summer jobs, jobs that paid, kept me away from Dad's annual summer projects. Then it was college, my first real job a wedding, a career. The further I moved from those summer tasks, though, the more I realized what my father had really been trying to teach me. Take pride in whatever work you do. Take the time to do the job well and leave things better than you found them. Eventually, my wife and I bought a house of our own. We hadn't been in our new place for very long when my wife volunteered to mow the lawn. The grass obviously hadn't been cut in, in quite some time. The previous owner must have given up on it well before we moved in. It'll be fun, Jen said. I'll get to mow, mow our very own lawn. I kept unpacking the garage, which we were using as a storage area for piles of boxes full of stuff. In no time at all, Jen was back. The front's done, she announced. I stepped out of the garage and took a look. The next words that came out of my mouth? That's good, but it isn't right. I couldn't believe it almost as soon as I'd said it. The voice was mine, but it was almost as though my father were the one speaking. I'm lucky that my wife knows my family. Well. Jen smiled. You sound like your dad. Yeah, I sheeplessly responded. I know. It's okay, she said. Your dad's a smart guy. And the grass is fine. Fortunately, I realized she was right on both points. After all, it's just the lawn. I wonder what dad would say to that. That was by Brian Fisk. Chapter 23. Work can be sacred. I think about the exalted nature of joyful work, the soul-filling beauty of it, every time I look at my collection of Southwest Pablo pottery. Acorn squash gold, chalky white, burnished black, or roof tile red, these rounded vessels were originally shaped to hold seeds for next year's garden or spicy stews for ceremonial feasts or the life-giving water that only desert dwellings like the pot makers truly value as the great treasure it is. Now, and since the railroads first opened, the Pueblos to tourists, 
sorry, opened the Pueblos to tourists in the 1800s, these beautiful vessels had been made for and prized by collectors like me. As I picked up one of these pots, technically called olas, and turned in my hands, I think about all the love and work and artistry it took to create. To make a pot, the potter first goes to the secret site where she and her family have found the best clay. She scrapes this into a container and brings it home, where she works tirelessly to cure it by kneading it with water, a process that can take months, so it will hold together when she shapes the pot. Then she creates clay coils, rolling the damp clay into snakes between her hands and coiling them one strip on top of the next to form the shape of the, of the pot. As she builds the pot, she scrapes the thick coils with a piece of gourd or stone to make the walls thin and light, gradually revealing the final, often paper-thin form of the piece. Once the shape is finished and has been sanded smooth and dried, the potter smooths liquid clay, the slip, over its surface and burnishes it with a smooth stone to a high gloss. She may then take pigments made from the carefully prepared local plants and minerals and create a design on the pot's surface. Like the shapes of the vessels and the source of the clay and pigments, these designs are often passed down in families for generations, and some of them originated in prehistoric times. Geometric and fantastic to our untrained eyes, to their makers, the patterns that flow across the pots represent the beauty of nature's birds, of nature rather, birds' wings, clouds, the skyline, moths and spiders. Once the pots have been painted, they are fired, traditionally outdoors under a mound of burning sheep dung chips. It takes days, sometimes weeks, to create a single pot. Each pot is a unique blending of the potter's skill and her design vision. Each pot that emerges whole and beautiful from the flames is a gift. Reading the potter's description of their work, I am struck again and again by their sense of the sacredness of the process, the quiet joy they take in creating objects of beauty that once held food and water, but now hold their people's history. When I hold a pot, it's as though the potter's own pleasure in its creation is being transmitted through the pot into my hands. It feels good. It feels right. And again, I'm reminded that any work done with joy is itself a beautiful creation. That's by Ellen Phillips. Chapter 24. Perfection is overrated. As a child, I studied piano with a gray-haired woman who smelled of talcum powder and gave me sugar cookies when I played my scales without mistakes. I was a little frightened of her house, dim and fussy, with fringe lampshades, dust-encrusted picture frames, and the gleaming black expanse of her baby grand piano. She corrected me in a stern voice, scowled when I hit a faulty chord, and firmly guided my fingers back to middle C. I took lessons from her for four years, then quit because piano didn't come as easily as algebra, poetry, or art, and I didn't want to fail. Years later in my twenties, I decided to try again. This time, my piano teacher was an effusive woman who gave me ragtime and jazz tunes along with classical sonitas and minuets. She had three children, and her house was a jumble of skateboards, jump ropes, and stray mittens. She often had to nudge toys aside to make a path to the piano. I liked her, but my old habits were hard to flee. I played stiffly, barely tickling the keys, my foot jittery and hesitant on the pedals. One day, my teacher asked, why do you play so tentatively? I remembered my first teacher and her scowls. I'm afraid of missing a note, I said. My teacher smiled. Andy, 
The room is full of misnotes. I glanced around at the room's colorful disarray, then back at the piano keys. She was right. I was being too cautious. If I didn't risk missing a note, I'd never play with verve and passion. The reward, this time, would not be a sugar cookie for a perfect performance, but simply the joy of filling the room with music, pure notes and dissonant ones, the expression of a heart let loose from fear. That's by Andy Hodgman. Chapter 25 It's not the size of the gift that counts. In the four years we'd known each other before getting married, not once did my wife's guitar emerge from its dormancy. I'd never even heard her play. The gorgeous 1976 Martin D-35 sat idly by in its case in a corner of the bedroom. It seemed the days of practicing along with records and performing in cafes had fallen victim to the rigors of a budding career and the hustle of city living. She'd often told me how much she enjoyed playing along with a, regu- a particular old, rare Neil Young record when she was in college and how she'd wished it would come out on CD so she could hear it again. She was so enamored by this album that she told me she'd researched it and was saddened to read somewhere that a CD release wasn't forthcoming due to some mastering issue or another. I kept this in mind for a few years, occasionally inquiring in record stores and looking on the internet to see if there was any news on the album's reissue to CD. Eventually, the Neil Young CD did get released, unbeknownst to my wife. When she arrived home from a late night at work, she was surprised to find it hidden under her pillow. I went into the bedroom to find her sitting on the bed, tuning up her Martin and playing along with the CD. She was truly beaming, amazed and flattered by the time I'd spent researching and looking for it. My wife and I have always enjoyed giving gifts. We made it a custom when we travel, we pick up little things along the way, small, simple and unexpected things indigenous to the area we're visiting. Gifting allows us to keep family and friends in our thoughts as we travel and share new experiences with them. After all, gifts, no matter their size, can inspire people. And that's the true joy of gift giving and one of the ways to keep relationships special. Now the Martin has become a regular guest when we travel to our home in the country for a weekend. My wife sits contentedly on the porch and plays for hours, a true gift for me to see. And that was by Rob Ulrich. Chapter 26. Time to stop and taste the chocolate. It's 1961 and a 35-year-old man is reading his newspaper in the Saturday morning prosperity of New Frontier America. Sorry, everyone. Just give me one moment, please. All right. Sorry. Sorry. uh, Let's start again. It's 1961, and a 35-year-old man is reading his newspaper in the Saturday morning prosperity of New Frontier, America, when his sons, eight and nine, come racing into the kitchen. The boys are on a mission. One jumps up and plucks glasses from a cupboard, then slips two spoons from a drawer. The other opens the fridge, emerging with a milk carton and then a cabinet, which yields a can of chocolate syrup. Moving with purpose of a surgical, moving with the purpose of a surgical team, the boys start pouring and mixing. Milk sloshes everywhere, 
high speed spoons, high speed spoons clickety clacking inside the glasses. Unnoticed, their father watches them, a naturalist, studying chimps in the wild. Before the milk has even stopped spinning, the boys suck it down in sink and in mere seconds. When they bang their glasses and turn to go back to the Huck and Tom adventure they had interrupted for refueling, their father announces his presence. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, he says. The startled boys stop with the suddenness of cartoon characters. Hey, Dad, the older one says sheeplessly, instantly aware that they've been bu- they're busted for the mess they've left in their wake, and adds, oh, we forgot to put the milk away, as though it was one of those pesky little oversights instead of their trademark. As they hastily clear the counter, the younger brother wipes up spilt milk with his hand and dries it on his jeans. Can, you, can I ask you guys something? Dad says in an inquisitive tone. What, Dad? Did you guys even taste that milk? What? They reply in unison, more confused than two people had ever been. You drank that milk so fast you barely had time to taste it. What? They said, stumped as to what he was talking about. You guzzled that milk down. It was in your bellies before you could even enjoy it. Oh no, we enjoyed it, the older boy said, suddenly realizing that Dad was in his little life lesson mode and taking the liberty on behalf of his brother to assure Dad that, oh yeah, they had really, really enjoyed the milk. Very much. Great milk. Oh yeah, we love the milk, the younger boy added, getting with the program. It was chocolatey. It was, all, it was also all over his chin, except for the drop that landed on his sneaker. Good. Always remember to taste the chocolate milk, the father said. This chocolate milk maven, a.k.a. my father, had a singular way with gratitude. He took a warm-hearted pleasure in the small blessings of the journey. Over the years, his use-your-taste-buds wisdom had come back to me countless times, reminding me to stay in the moment, to notice all the small enchantments along the way. Yes, of course, habit habit will overcome us as we move through our obligations, And nobody can pay attention all the time. It's exhausting. We actually need a little autopilot times in our lives. But I don't nearly need as much as I usually get. And a long sentence ago, sorry, and a long ago sentence from a father to his sons endures, reminding this grown man that even through travails, a person can pay attention and savor the chocolatey sweetness of the world. And that was by Hugh O'Neill. Chapter 27. You can handle more than you think. My first child, a girl, was born six weeks early, so baby Julia ended up spending most of her month in a miracle ward known as the NICU, Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. Here, modern technology and vigilant staff combined to keep alive the tiniest, most vulnerable new arrivals on the planet including many many babies that only a generation ago would have literally been left for dead. We would pass these tiny newborns on the way to Julia's incubator. Some weighed less than a pound, lovely little little ETs on shiny foil mats, lying quietly in a tank. The babies wore eye masks under bright blue lights, used to fight jaundice. At night, the nurses made the room dark, transforming the place into a spooky movie set, the only light emanating from that row of experimental pods containing the miniature masked beings under the blue lights. Julia, all wrinkly and skinny. Sorry, give me one moment, everyone. (laughs) 
Julia, all wrinkly and skinny, was among the largest of these kids, but still quite ill. The reflex to breathe is one of the last things to develop in the room, since breathing's not necessary there. So sometimes Julia's body would forget and shut down, setting off alarms until the nurse would calmly touch her back to life, like a wife tapping a napping husband in church. But the worst came when Julia got a life-threatening infection. One horrible night, I watched as doctors stuck our baby with huge needles for a spinal tap. She was so sick and lifeless, she didn't even stir. But the infection cleared, and weeks later, we finally were allowed to strap Julia into a car seat. We drove slowly to our house, placed her on the kitchen counter, and said, Welcome home. Upon examining my wife Jenny after Julia's birth, the doctor said the premature delivery was likely a fluke, and there was no reason to believe that it would happen again. The doctors lied. A couple of years later, Jen was pregnant again. Nine weeks before our due date, she began experiencing contractions two to four minutes apart. In other words, the train was leaving the station. A stay in the hospital put the brakes on for a while. While that plus bags full of powerful drugs, whose street value no doubt exceeded our enormous hospital bill. And then Jen came home. On the Saturday night after Thanksgiving, moments after I had hung the final string of white lights on my increasingly increasingly excessive front yard Christmas extravaganza, extravaganza, the train began to approach its final destination. After Jen spent weeks fighting a painful, uncomfortable battle against nature and her own body, her water broke. I ran around the house Ricky Ricardo style, looking for, I don't know, shoes or a suitcase or something. My mother-in-law rushed over to watch Julia, shrieking that I should bring a blanket and scissors for the frantic 20-minute drive to the hospital. Scissors? Less than three hours later, my new daughter Valerie was chilling in her crib, listening to Sinatra. Well, actually, it was an incubator, with my tape player propped up in there against the glass. She was small under five pounds. Many people have no doubt caught fish that were bigger. But we weren't throwing this one back. Valerie's stay in her pod was blessedly less eventful than her sister's. A couple of weeks later, she was on the kitchen counter. It's been years. Our life now is full of giggles, ballet slippers, basketball practice, and two bright and inquisitive girls, plus two grateful parents. There's almost nothing remarkable about this story. It happens every day. Most families have survived much worse. And to me, that's the most amazing part. Sometimes life does get spooky, but somehow people get through it. In our case, it was with worry, fear, tears, and prayer. With friends and family and the power of modern medicine. By leapfrogging unsteadily from one doctor's meetings to the next, hour by hour. And by pretending everything was going to be okay. In the end, for us, it was. The whole experience of the NICU now seems like some dark little forest that we got lost in for a short while. With much help, we were lucky to find a clearing and have rarely looked back. But it's good to know that when the next dark, dark patch comes, and it will, like everyone else, we will somehow find a way. And that was by Nelson Penna. Chapter 28. A True Surprise is a Rare Gift. Why do you always do that, my wife says, the frustration evident in her voice. You told me to guess, I say. Sorry. We've had the same conversation many times before. Christmas, birthdays, Valentine's Day, you name the holiday. 
If there's gift-giving involved, there's a good chance I've spoiled the surprise by guessing what her present to me is. I'm not sure how I developed the skill, reading the look on her face when she says, you'll never guess this time, remembering conversations about different projects or pastimes when she was particularly paying attention. Honestly, I don't know what it is that lets me confidently say a cordless drill or the new Almond Brothers CD or those boots I was checking out at REI. But there's a strange pleasure in knowing that I'm right, that I know. That's why it was so frustrating that when Jen was pregnant with our first child, she made it clear that she didn't want to know if it was a boy or a girl. How could she not want to know? From toys to clothes to room decorations, I figured that knowing boy versus girl would just make things easier. Still, I couldn't argue. After all, she was the one carrying the baby, and in my mind that made her the decision maker. So I waited, though I often asked, are you sure you don't want to know? The answer was always the same. Yes, I'm sure. No, we're not finding out. When Jen went into labor, I actually didn't think about the boy or girl question. Her labor was tough. Labor always is. I've learned and long. We were in the hospital for over 24 hours before she even started pushing. I've been there the whole time, of course, but it's not like I could really help. I'm no doctor. All I could do was worry. Then I saw the head. The anxiety, the waiting, the not knowing of the past nine months came flooding back. And then it was over. The little body came out, inhaled, turned pink, and started to cry. It's a boy, the doctor proclaimed. Then I started to cry too. All the wondering, all the guessing was over in that one spectacular instant. The truth is, my guess is up to that point. We're going to have a boy. No, wait, I think it's a girl. It meant nothing because I really couldn't tell. I just didn't know. And not knowing made the final revelation even more remarkable. As though I was given the chance to make up for all the surprises I'd spoiled over the years. I learned at that moment that true surprise is so rare, so special, that it needs to be embraced at every opportunity. Now we're expecting our second child. And when people ask if we're going to find out if it's a boy or a girl... I immediately say no. I don't want to know. I want to be surprised. And that's by Brian Fisk. Chapter 29. Attitude is half the battle. Truth be told, I've never been a great, great athlete. The sport I enjoyed the most in high school and was best at, in relation to other sports I attempted, was cross country. But even then... I never came close to breaking any records or winning any races. All I could chalk up on my list of accomplishments was completing all the runs, even the long weekend ones we were supposed to do on our own through the honor system. In my first actual race, I came in somewhere in the middle, consistent with my usual performance. And considering the hours of training I had put in, I was frustrated. My coach, who wasn't known for praise, so all his good words were worth their weight in gold, pulled me aside at the finish line and said, you're not real fast, and your form could use some work, but I know I'll always be able to count on you to keep on running and do it with a smile on your face. And that's half the battle. I listened to his half the battle feedback with half an ear and then sat under a tree in a semi-sulk. But deep down, somehow his words stuck with me over the years, in my personal relationships, in my profession as a writer, in my still mediocre but diligent running career. I know and accept that not everyone I meet is going to like me. I know I'm not going to nail 
every single story I write, and I know I'll probably never place in a 5K, much less win one. But sometimes the outcome of your effort, outcomes of your efforts or the number of people you beat, aren't the most critical. It's your integrity, the quality of the work you do, and the lessons you learn along the way that really matter. Just the other day, almost 13 years after that first cross-country race, I was sitting in a job performance review. After getting praised for some things and criticized for others, my boss said, but when you come in, you check your problems at the door. You genuinely want to do a fine job. You always have a good attitude. And really, that's half the battle. This time, instead of sulking, I got right back to work. With half the battle won, I couldn't wait to start the other half of the battle. And that was by Elizabeth Schimmer. Chapter 30. Age is just a number. Every summer in New York State, the small vacation town of Lake George is taken over by families looking to entertain themselves with boating, water skiing, and a plethora of other activities that call for flip-flops and a bathing suit. But it was also the site of a mission for one 76-year-old woman, my grandma. She's the kind of woman who buys shoes just because she likes them and worries about what outfit she'll wear with them later. She flirts relentlessly with teenage waiters when she goes out to eat, and she travels to Europe twice and she's traveled to Europe twice in the past several years. So no one in the family was surprised when she led the way on an afternoon parasailing adventure. It was simply something she'd always wanted to do. So there she was, strapped into a parachute, sailing high behind a speedboat, breaking the age barrier people on the shore seemed to place on her with their amazed looks. She was a banner crying out that fun, even the extreme variety, isn't reserved strictly for teenagers. Grammy didn't even notice the fuss. She's never gotten locked into acting her age. But through the years, she has picked up some valuable wisdom. She ignores the expected and does what she wants. To her, age is just a number, one that puzzles her but doesn't dictate. I know 25-year-olds who swap short shirts for business suits, 45-year-olds who exchange a night in the town for too many nights in front of the TV. My grandma wouldn't understand. Soaring above that lake, she wasn't worried what a 76-year-old should look like. In fact, she wasn't worried about anything. My grandma was simply sharing a bright summer day with her family, savoring the thrill of wind and speed lifting her high into the air. And thank, thanking God for allowing her to fulfill one more dream here on earth. And that was by Katie Chiffin. Chapter 31. Your contribution is more valuable than you think. He was the most gifted professional I knew, a consummate reporter, a nurturing boss, a caring colleague. It was easy to be in awe of him, and I was. The problem was the editor was about to join me for several days in coverage of the political campaign I was following. He would be sitting next to me on the press plane, eating the same sterile airline food, reading the same handouts, and watching me write. With that pressure, how could I possibly get through the week? As luck would have it, it was he who had to write first. He joined the campaign with a notebook full of some Washington development or another and had to write about it aboard the plane typewriter perched on his knees before we hit the next campaign stop. So he rolled the paper into the typewriter, just as I would. He sat motionless for several minutes, just as I would. He typed a bit and rolled the plantain up and mulled, just as I would. 
He axed and hummed with ferocity, just as I would. He anguished, just as I would. And then he did an astonishing thing. He asked me to read over his shoulder his raw copy. Dumbly I read. He had a word in the second paragraph that was not quite right. I meekly suggested a replacement. His eyes lit up, and he rolled the copy back and down to that spot and inserted my word. My word! The experience reoccurred several times before he was finished, and when he had completed the story, he sighed. I looked at him quizzically. I'm sure. And he said something that, in my naivete, I thought he had coined at that very moment, and realized only years later had been a citation of writer Dorothy Parker. I hate to write, but I love having written. It summed up my whole existence, and I loved Max Frankel for having let me see, for the first time in my life, that I was not uniquely insecure. The demigod was merely human. And that was by Jim Naughton. And that actually sums up our reading for today. That brings us to chapter 32 in this book. I trust that you guys enjoyed this entry and I just wanted to say I really enjoyed these few chapters of this book because I think each lesson kind of weaves into the concept of life. That you've got to enjoy the moments, pause and taste that chocolatey sweetness. Age is just a number. Enjoy your life. Remember that you're not the only one in the room who's feeling insecure. There's lots of people around who are having a similar journey as you. And maybe sometimes you just need to find that out. And also that doing what, doing your best and enjoying your moments is half your battle. Good attitudes, all of those things is half the battle. The rest will be the work. And when you do something and you earn it, it's just much more sweet. I really love the messages in here. And the one I love most of all, because life has its ups, but also has its downs, is the fact that every, everyone has dark moments. But we get through them all, don't we? So I really loved this entry, or these couple chapters of this book. I trust that you enjoyed it. I trust that it's broadened your mind, inspired your thoughts, or a conversation. Maybe you just needed to hear these things today. I trust that maybe it changed your world a bit, maybe brightened it if it needed to be brightened, and enlightened it if it needed to be enlightened. Whatever it's done, I trust that it's entertained you, and that it has served you. And remember, everyone, that your flame, your fire, will always burn. Lighting someone else's fire will never diminish yours. It will only create a larger fire. I've so enjoyed reading 50 Truths Worth Knowing with you. I apologize that this week, we're coming in on a Wednesday instead of a Sunday, but as we all know, life tends to happen, and life happened to me, and some technical difficulties, so please be gentle with me, and forgive me for being late this week. Next week, we will definitely be doing Sunday, so tune in. Please like, share, follow, look at us at, at Chapter by Chapter on Instagram. Also, check me out at at Miss Felicia J, sorry, chapter by chapter 256 on Instagram, and also at Miss Felicia J on Instagram. I really enjoyed reading with you, as I already said, but have a great day. Enjoy the rest of your week. Take care of yourself and each other. This is Miss Felicia J. Until next time, be well.